Hello, are we on the air yet? Welcome to the Core Performance Podcast, taking you one step closer to self-mastery on and off the course. Fire up that growth mindset, and let's dive into the core of elite golf and human performance. Now, here's your hosts, Ian Highfield and Andrew Losey. Hello podcast world, I am your host Ian Highfield, welcome to the Core Performance Podcast. Now it's just me today, uh, unfortunately for the listeners, Andrew is away, he is down in Georgia, uh, sunning himself at the Junior Jones Cup, uh, which is a huge uh, junior tournament, very highly ranked junior tournament, so he is down there supporting his players uh, and helping them make the most of the, the great experience they're going to have at that big uh, competition. So we don't have Andrew with us today, but we do have an awesome guest. Our guest is super passionate, super, super knowledgeable. He loves, absolutely loves what he does. Um, so today you're going to hear myself and Lyle Kirkham, a sports psychologist um, based in the UK, owns a company called Spark Performance. You're going to hear us talk about golf's mental game. Now, please, 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 please grab a pen, grab a piece of paper, because some of the strategies that are discussed in this podcast are so simple, yet they can help you relax, enjoy being on the golf course, and ultimately perform to a higher level. So if you want to shoot lower scores, if you want to be more effective away from the golf course, reflecting on your rounds of golf, if you want to be more effective in your mental preparation, ready for a tournament, more effective in between shots, maintaining a certain mindset that's going to help you play better, this podcast has some absolutely great pieces of information that can help you. So, if you want to perform to a higher level on or off the golf course, get ready, get your pen and paper out, and take some notes from the super knowledgeable, super smart, and super passionate Lyle Kirkham. Lyle, how are you? What's going on? I'm good, thank you, Ian. How are you? I'm I'm good, mate. I'm good. It's uh, it's getting a little cold where I am, so golf season's winding down. I'm, I'm getting ready to. Uh, do a little bit of Christmas traveling with with the now wife. Um, what, what about yourself? Plans for the festive period? Yeah, just really taking a back seat. I think it's been a hectic year. Um, it's getting cold here. Mind you, I suppose it's always cold in the UK, isn't it? It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's something we have to adapt to. But yeah, no, not much planned, but I suppose that's nice from my perspective to not have anything planned. You know, I'm always striving to put stuff in the diary and, and moving forward. So to actually sort of, sort of block out, I don't know about you, but I make a massive sort of a block out of the, the calendar and colour it in with different colours just to make sure that I don't do any work. You know, that's how I was, but now I'm getting more tech savvy in my old age. I'm going to put the out of office reply on the email. It'd probably take me three hours to figure out how to do it, but I'm I'm determined to do it. And that's getting, that's getting flipped on after this podcast. Um, look, that. Obviously, I know you really well from um, you reaching out to me, us connecting, talking on the phone, sharing visions and, and passions and ideas. Um, but for the Core Performance Podcast listener, why don't you introduce yourself, tell them a little bit about what's kept you so busy in the in the last few months and why you're looking forward to the break. No, thank you. Yeah, as you said, it's brilliant to sort of get this set up as well. I know it's been a something in the pipeline for a while as well. That's and, my, that's my uh, fault. That's my <laughs> I fault. think it's both, you know, as you said, it's, it's brilliant that we're both busy as well, but yeah. So my sort of area and my official title for, let's say for the next five months is sports psychologist in training. Um, and I mean that in training element there from the fact that I'm five months away from completing my stage two training group uh, to become HCPC registered. So in total, it's probably been an eight year journey. Um, and it started from obviously undergrad in sports psychology, going through my master's and then getting to a stage where I've been really, really good at reading books and, and understanding the theoretical sort of side of psychology and human behaviour in sport. But then actually the second sort of stage, which is the stage two, I call it actually real life, you know, going out into the, the applied practice and 
working with clients um, and actually understanding how psychology and sports psychology is delivered. And I can honestly say for people listening, the two are very different. You know, what, what goes down in a book looks completely different. I'm sure you can back me up there, Ian. It's actually on the court when you're working with, it's what I term noisy. Um, you know, when you're out in the field, you're out in the, in the field with, with a client, it's very noisy. Um, it's not linear. It's not cyclical. But that's the beauty of it from my perspective, and that's why I love it. And, um, yeah, work, really privileged at the moment to be working across different sports. I've got some, some good contracts. Um, as I said, I think the name gives it away. You know, I've named after Sandy Lyle, the golfer. So golf's a massive <laughs> passion of mine. Uh, granddad had massive hopes for me. He was like, right, he's going to be on the tour. He's going to do all of this. It hasn't quite materialised like that, but uh, that's where it all started for me. Yeah, so five months away from achieving that accreditation, which has been the, the end, end target for me. But honestly, absolutely love it. Love, love, love being in the field. Well, yeah, you you said yeah that that you said it again there. I was going to pick up on that point. One thing that that drew me to connecting with you was your energy, your passion, your love for what you do, and it's a it's a sad reflection of the world sometimes. Like you stand out when you love what you do. Um, so I'm just gonna, for argument's sake, call you a sports psychologist because in five months you will be. And for those listening. The process to become a sports psychologist, it's not like you become a, a, a doctorate or you get your sports psychology and then you start. Like you've got masses and masses and masses of experience. And now you're just going to get this official um, title that shows how hard you've worked, how hard you've studied, how many hours you've worked in the applied arena uh, to be able to, to tell you to 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 um give yourself that that title so tell us a little bit about why you love sports psychology so much um and and again and then maybe tell us a little bit on how hard the journey is to becoming a, a, a phd and a fully recognized sports psychologist because i know that journey and i saw how hard it was going to be and I chose not to, to take those steps. So I can't call myself a sports psychologist, right? I'm a mental performance coach or, or a performance coach. So I want to make that clear distinction that you are really someone who's absolutely mastering their craft and you're five months away from getting this ultimate title. So explain that a little bit and explain why you love this so much and, and went through all that process. There's this, and to be fair, you know, through this process, I've looked back at my journey and one of the things that I pinpointed quite early and for those of that maybe have, I've spoken to or listened to me speak before, not on very rarely because I don't jump on many podcasts, but um, one of the stories I share was Mosca Beachy Blue and Green Slides and um, I was in school, so this was my sixth form, AS level psychology, so first real experience of psychology and um, it was Muggins over here that was late for the class and I walked in and the teacher said right I've only got one task for you Lyle we've got a blue and a green slide up in front of you I'm going to put a colour up on the board and I want you to just tell me what the colour is that was it no no more instructions than that so the, the task sort of started first colour came up on the board it was blue I held up the blue card as you as I would to my sort of amazement and amusement everyone else in the class held up the green and I looked around and it was just a, what's going on here? You're all, what, what, what sort of world are you living in? That happened for six or seven goes. And then eventually the, the colour went up on the screen. Before I'd even know it, I was looking around at what everyone else had put. And then I changed my answer. And that was when the, the teacher at the time stopped the class and went, you've just conformed to the majority. You want to fit in. So you've changed your response. Did you know that that was wrong before you held it up? And I went, Yes. And I just remember that, that poignant moment for me was walking out of the class going, what? Why has that happened? How has that happened? Why have I just been like, walking out with more questions than answers? And from there, that was the, the sort of, a, not to name drop, the spark that sort of initiated a lot of interest. And then I realised I can combine that with a passion for sport that had always been there. Ever since from a young age, I'd always played sport. Um, and I've picked up so many different sort of technical things, physical things, social, that have made me the person that I am today. But I just remember sitting in that sixth form sort of job job journey interview that they do, and I went, I'm going to be a sports psych. Uh, and he went, what? Can you do that as a career? And I was like, I don't know, but I know that I'm going to try. Uh, 
if you'd have asked me that at the start or if they'd have lined out the career path, I'd have probably done a similar journey and gone, mm, well, actually, let's, let's see if I can go down a different route there. That's too long. Um, so, yeah, obviously, on to undergrad, master's and obviously the applied route. And that was my sort of journey. But just picking up like little things, networking, I think has been a massive part of me learning from different people, you know, but also a change in mindset since I've stepped onto this stage too. I walked off out of my master's all of this knowledge going I'm going to take over the world you know I'm going to be the best sports psychologist in the world now if you ask me that question it's the case of being better than I was yesterday or being a more developed rounded individual and human being and that's that's going to create opportunities rather than me going out and telling people how good I am it's going to come about by the way that I present myself by my values and then you gravitate towards people like that and as you said I'm really looking to gravitate to people like yourself um that have followed a similar thing and energy sort of just bounces off each other as well so yeah i um, think there's the, some of the things that you say you have like these little pearls of wisdom in in your sentences and i i think i'm gonna use a couple of those things you said i left with more questions than i answered mm. that is a magical um statement that resonated with me because probably a bit like yourself. I was a multi-sport athlete, came very easy to me, rugby, soccer slash football, cricket, golf, um, representative honours, you know, who's he going to play for, England or Scotland? That's what the kind of things that your parents' <laughs> friends throw around because my mum's from Scotland, my dad's from England, and he's a natural. And then, like, honestly, I was average, below average by the time I was 19. So I had questions. Number one question, how did I go from being so good to sucking so bad in such a short space of time? Let's let's try and answer that question. Uh, and I stumbled upon a lot of sports psychology. I actually stumbled upon a, a bit of NLP as well, neuro-linguistic yeah. programming, which always, is, always isn't held to high regard in the sports psychology field. But my own personal belief is that it, it, there are, there's some validity to a lot of those theories. So I would never discard them. Um, but yeah, it's really that, good on the applied front, isn't it? NLP. So that that's going to lead me to to a question later. My, I did feel when I was first going down this route and really sort of looking at cognitive psychology and sports psychology, I felt it wasn't applied enough. I felt it took place in classrooms. I felt it was pretty academic. I felt like a lot of the writing I couldn't connect with. So how much? How are my students going to connect with it? And, and then I made it my mission to make sports psychology and academia, even though I wasn't an academic, I spent so much time with some just unbelievable professors just because I asked for help. But I started to try and make it digestible and practically applicable for the end user. So I'm going to throw this back at you because um, I, 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 I got to put the listener at everything we do right me and you could just have an amazing conversation now <laughs> like we're talking on the phone and the listeners are going to be like what are these guys on about so look what do you do as a sports psychologist what is your ultimate goal you've got an athlete in front of you um junior golfer or whoever it might be what are you offering and how do you do it we kind of know why you're a sports mm -hmm. psychologist right you've answered that question but what are you doing and how are you doing it? Let's really just dive into that. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a brilliant question as well. And, you know, as we just highlighted there, I'm doing a normal psychologist thing and I'm filling in the gaps to give me a little bit more time to think about the question that you've just asked. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's something that I have considered before. You know, you've got to have this elevator pitch. You've got to have a good understanding of, of your, your approach. And one of the ways that I do it is, is simplify it into a mission statement for me and, it's to contribute to meaningful, positive change in people's lives. And just say that, just say that again, just say that. Yeah. One more time. So so as a sports psychologist, you. As a sports psychologist, I want to contribute to positive, meaningful change in people's lives. And that basically, essentially, is very different to different people. So my journey, my role is to want understand the individual, understand the environment, and then be able to make recommendations, be able to make understandings based on what they've given me and help them make those positive, meaningful changes. And again, 
it's, it's perfectly open-ended because of the uniqueness of every individual, you know, and I'm sure you've had this where you get someone come to you with us. Probably you've had that experience before. Someone's presented a, a, a completely, a completely similar situation. However, the actual individual is completely different. And that's the main factor for me in that situation. So my role as a sports psychologist is contribute to that change. And, you know, sometimes you contribute through knowledge, you contribute through de delivering techniques that help them in that situation, or you actually just contribute by listening. So it's very, very different depending on the individual. Yeah, I think that's good advice for me in there because, because my mission was to make sports psychology digestible and accessible and practical i often think that sometimes if i'm not giving them something practical or i'm not giving them a tool or i'm not high energy and the, the person that naturally comes I often think the session has maybe not gone that well but maybe that person in front of me just needed to talk and my me literally doing nothing but listening I help them. So that's actually very um, good advice for me to, that's one of the reasons I do this podcast as well. Yeah. So I, I can, this is a great outlet for me. Um, unfortunately, because it's a podcast, I need to push you for more <laughs> for the listener. Right. So let's, let's, let, let's kind of go with a, a bit of a role play. I, I just think the answer is, is, is so right. But for, for podcast sake, let's say, junior golfer, 14 years old, um, you, they want to play at a US college or maybe they want to break into the England setup or international setup. Maybe they want to get their handicap from five to scratch, whatever it is. Just talk about that journey. And if I see this, this is a common theme. This is maybe a common solution. And I don't want to discredit you because I know you treat everyone as an individual as do I, but I want the listeners that are junior golfers to be able yeah. to go away and digest this. Or I want the listeners that are parents to be like, okay, that might be a sound piece of advice that I can pass on to my, to my child. Yeah, no, that's it. And I think, as you said, as, as part of my journey, I would take them through a, a system and a structure, which is sort of a generalized sports psychology structure. So that first, that first phase is, is what we call intake. And that's the meeting, you know, where that individual, I meet that individual. So I'm interested there in what's the situation. They've come to me. They might have been recommended through themselves. They might have gone directly or they might have been recommended through a coach or an organization. Right. Understanding why, 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 um, why almost what's brought you here today? What's the situation? And that's what we call then the information gathering there. And obviously I'll be looking at sort of situations, right? Okay. How often? Does that happen? How long potentially has that happened for? What is the, what we call the, the sort of the ABC short structure. So activating event, maybe the belief and the consequence, you know, in sort of cognitive behavioral style, understanding that in a framework then. And, and this is to be fair, some, some clients I would share that with other clients I wouldn't. And it's a case of that's where you go treating them individually, but that's what I'd be looking for from that information gathering stage. Then what it's a case for me is case formulation. So, um, putting together the research with what I've got and creating that triangle approach there. So as you can say, from that perspective, then, then we move on to the intervention. Again, I'm, I'm aware of what you've just asked um, and obviously coming back to some of the things. And it is just actually sitting down and being present with that individual, you know, when say, for example, if that individual struggling with confidence, might even be a case of really getting into the clues around what that, what that language looks like, you know, with the individual, because you'll pick it up and, use a lot of power phrasing in my um in my in my consultancy practice which is where i'll sort of take snippets of what they've said and replay it back to them in a different frame and see what they get and see if that channels some a different way of thinking um so if you was to listen to me you'd be like right okay so what i've heard there is this can you explain a little bit more because what you're starting to do then is although they've just given you a top of the surface answer as i would call it you're looking to try and get into a little bit more understanding, which is below the surface, um, maybe where that's come from. And that's what I would try to do in those first early sessions, but also working out how the client wants to work, you know, um, and celebrating the fact as well that they've actually made the foot in the door. I, I really celebrate them 
wanting to open that door and having conversations with people like myself, I understand how difficult it can be sometimes because then in the mainstream world, we have to admit that there's an issue. Whereas actually now I'm sort of congratulating that because there, there comes the movements. So that's awesome. Do you believe there is a bit of a stigma still around uh, athletes or individuals coming and seeing people like, like yourself? I think so. Yeah, I think it's starting to move in the right directions, you know, with more and more establishments now encouraging the use of sports psychology. Uh, that factors into how difficult this situation has been for me, you know, and how probably how far behind the, the UK is in terms of the US. You know, like you're going over there, the college the collegiate systems now, they've got mental conditioning coaches, sports sites, working with their athletes from an early age. So it's, it's exposed to them. Um, whereas over here, it's almost kind of like, very monetized looking at it because there's no and the problem we have sometimes is that there's if you're a businessman and only looking at the money it's difficult to address that effectiveness you know because sometimes you don't always see the movements or it's not fast paced you know s and c can be measured you know with muscle mass and all these sorts of yeah. growth where in sports psych you can't necessarily measure psychological growth sometimes yeah, I, I believe, I say that a lot. I talk about the golf industry mm. being obsessed with the golf swing because they can see it. But yeah. the mind moves the body, the body yeah. moves the club, and the club moves the ball. If you don't put your mind in the correct place, the body and the club is can just get out of sync, even if you've got the best golf swing in the world. But we can't read someone's brain. We can't, I mean, we can measure brain waves. And we can have an understanding of how you change them and certain states, but that's a whole different world and a whole different level of technology and a different set of skills. Right. So um, I, I totally agree with, with that point. There is a point I want to, I want to push you on a little bit because I'm, I'm from the UK yeah. and yes, I definitely get more business in the U S is there's definitely more acceptance of, hey, help me perform to a higher level. However, however, have you ever read the book, What Made Maddie Run? No. So you cited colleges, and I think colleges are very much in a position to support their athletes from a mental performance standpoint hey, this is how we're going to score more points and breathing exercises. And hey, if you're having this kind of thought, it's this intervention. And if you're X, then it's Y. But as a human, when you're maybe not sharp or when you feel like you're burning out or when you need someone to speak to, I still don't, I still don't know if they're there yet. Um, and something that highlight, highlighted that is a book called What Made Maddie Run. Um, and anyone listening to the podcast that has a child in organized sports or that wants to go and play college sports, read that book. It, it will make you more compassionate. It will make you more empathetic. It will make you more, a, a, a more effective listener, parent, coach, sports psychologist, or, or whatever. It's, it's really good. It's by a lady called Kate Fagan who played... Um, college basketball um and i'm not going to ruin the the story but super superb book um so yeah sorry just two things i, I picked up on lyle Go, going back to what you said so junior golfer turns up and they bang their club a lot and they get frustrated and they can be playing well and then one thing goes wrong and everything unravels that's the information that you've got. As a sports psychologist, what are the next steps? Just, just so we can understand. And then what could be some potential interventions for a player that is, is behaving in that way that you might see as a, as a common thread? I know that you want to get to the individual, right? But what may or may not uh, how might you navigate that path? Yeah, I think, as you said, it comes down for me to trying to understand that individual's environment, you know, understand the thought process. So the behaviour, the emotion is frustration, potentially. Um, what are the thought processes that potentially lead to that? And 
from my my stance point as well so i'm starting to move towards what a, a psychological framework called acceptance and commitment training or therapy um which is more of a mindfulness based but more changing the relationship that they have with that thought you know i've gone through uh, rational emotive behavioral therapy which is a rational irrational so if you've got an irrational statement then you change it to a more rational one got you um, whereas I'm moving towards this idea of changing the relationship. So like, we've got this, this thought here. What's the function of it? And understanding the idea and, and the, the behavioural consequences of that. So that would be really from my, my perspective is to understand that. And within ACT as well, what we're looking to try and do is essentially move towards this idea of psychological flexibility, where we can be aware of the present moment and what's going on. Uh, but then we can engage and commit to sort of valued behaviour ends. So understanding what is meaningful to that behaviour, what that, that individual, sorry, and how can they go and execute that despite what thoughts and feelings turn up. So it's a difficult one, you know, for a lot of golfers because we're asking them to go against almost kind of what we're taught from an early age, you know, that if we have this negative thought, let's try and get rid of it a little bit or let's try and push it down, you know, and let's try and avoid feeling like that. Whereas I'm asking them, or not asking them, but discussing with them the potentially to opening up to that experience, you know, because looking at it from an evolutionary perspective, that sole purpose potentially of that area of frustration, I use a framework where, I'm sorry, um, a quote where it's probably only there because they care. That initial thought process that started because they care about the golf game, maybe they want to go well as, as far as they can. It just gets lost in translation of human life and that's where it gets noisy. So that would be part of my role and part of an intervention is how can we move towards this idea of psychological flexibility? And a few things there are obviously beautiful metaphors for me, you know. So I say this idea of, you know, when you say, for example, you're, in, you're on a golf course and um, you, you have this thought about what's going to happen. So right, it's like well, a great one is don't go in the water. You know, we've all talked about this idea of ironic <laughs> processing. Don't go in the water. But at the time, that feel, that thought feels like a fact. You know, if I have this thought, I'm going to go in the water. It feels like a fact. And the idea of ACT is helping them, what we sort of diffused from that feeling, but also to be aware that the brain is just a prediction machine, not presenting you with any facts. And it's this idea of then we start to move. So at the time when you're having that thought, it feels like that thought is the caddy. You know, you're going to yeah. listen to the caddy. Whereas what you can do over time, and this is the psychological flexibility element, is learn to move that caddy into the crowd. Because if we talk about this, when you're playing at golf events, you're aware that the crowd's there and you're aware that they're talking and having their own conversations. But are you aware of that or are you able to focus on what you want to do? You just hit the golf shot that you want to be able to. So that's the idea. And that's one of the interventions Um as mentioned there, I also have sort of experience in delivering REBT, which is really profound as well, which has got, but also what's what's important to make sure is that these all come off the CBT tree, as I yeah. call them. They're just different branches. So yeah. it's a case of thought processes and understanding them. Because as you said there, the thought processes eventually lead to our behaviors. Yeah. Um, so again, to pick up on one of your gems, the brain is a prediction machine. Uh, but it's not dealing in facts. Love that. Definitely going to steal that one. I'm learning, learning more. Um, and yeah, I, I, I just think that's so true. And then you mentioned about like that, that prediction that's not fact. It's like it's caddying for you. And it's funny, I, I, I say to students all the time, when you caddied for your friend, would you speak to them like you speak to yourself? And they'd be like, no way. It wouldn't be my friend. In fact, maybe they would punch me in the face. And I'll say, why would you be nicer to your friend than yourself? You have these big goals of playing in college. You have these big dreams. You know, your friend just wants to get the ball in the air and you're being nicer to them than, than yourself. Like you've got to learn to be nicer to, to yourself. Um, but I think some of them, and this is a question where I want your help, and I think probably the people listening would also, some of them are so unaware of what they're saying to themselves. Like they have no idea how 
horrible they're being to themselves in a, in a way. So why does that happen? Why do we have that lack of awareness? And, and how can we, can we gain it? Because you said earlier, you don't want them to push that thought down. But you, you can't push it down or you can't acknowledge it and move on from it if you're unaware. So to me, it starts with the, the, the metacognition, the awareness of those thoughts. So how do you go about helping golfers with that? As you said there, I think, and that's where it comes down to creating the environment for them to have that conversation with themselves. You know, if they're sitting down with me, there's going to be an indication where I might create an environment that allows them to, sort of speak about that and, and then pick that up and then go from there. But as you said, if you don't always have the the opportunity to sit down with a sports psych, you know, and, and, and have these, it's, it's, it is almost kind of just listening to yourself. And sometimes, you know, that means taking a step back. Mm. I always think about it. When we experience the heat of the battle, we almost want to run into the middle of the fire. That's what it's almost like. Like we want to get involved as quickly as we can. And sometimes that means getting it over with as quickly as we can as well. But, that's the difficulty here because we're asking you to actually see the fire, but not want to run into it and just take a little step back. And I love the example. I'm going to pick up what you said there around being nicer to your friends. That's an activity that we can do to gain perspective. What would you say to yourself if you was in your caddy's shoes and you were watching yourself perform, knowing that these were happening? What would you mm. say to yourself that could potentially create a more compassionate self? And then, um, sorry to interrupt. Do you, do you have um, do you ever have them journal? Do you ever have your clients journal and and write things down? This is what I'm likely to say. This is what I would say if I was the caddy for my friend. Therefore, this is the process or the action moving forward. Do you have them? Does does your uh, company spark? Do they have worksheets? Yeah. Do, do do students have journals? Like, how do you go about? now layering this and making this a more effective process for someone to learn. Yeah, that's it. And to be fair, that's what we did as, as a spark. We, I created um, a performance journal, um, created that during the lockdown, pretty much exactly for what you just said there as well. And it was very much a case of giving the clients an opportunity just to write down their experiences, writing down their thoughts and in their context as well, you know, a normal everyday journal might take place in a bedroom at home or something like that, away from the battle. That's what I called it. Whereas I wanted to create a journal that took the battle, took the took the experience to the battle. Yeah. So we 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 created a, a training log and a competition log, um, and that factors in exactly what you just said there. And that's where I look at it, and I I use that as my um, opportunity at the start of every session I have with a normal client. So I set aside 15, 20 minutes just to talk about experiences because, and you know what, actually sometimes that's, that's, that's taken up the whole session. What started 15, 20 minutes, they might present something, but yes, okay, I've got all of this plan here. They might present something in that 15 minutes that kind of goes, tell me more about this. And then we've explained it and we've actually looped around to what we wanted to talk about in the first place. And, and how, just to just to because I have my belief on this, how powerful is journaling for changing a behavior? It's pretty powerful. Yeah. I, I use this this statement when you write it, it becomes real. And I, I have no statistical evidence to back that up and stuff like that. But sounds cool though. It's it, never... it. But it's just something about writing it down and actually sort of presenting thoughts that we can't see onto a piece of paper that we can that is almost confirming that, that belief or that hypothesis that we create. So don't you think it's crazy in the golf world that professional golfers will buy a radar for $24,000 <laughs> that can tell them every spin loft, angle of attack, D plane, and they won't spend $1.99 from Amazon and give 10, 15 minutes to journaling down their thoughts. Cause Ultimately, what we're talking about here, without even really giving it a title, we're now getting mm. into self-talk, right? That's what yes. we're, that's the psychological process right now. We're talking about self-talk, how you talk to yourself. And the golf swing is far more valued. The mechanics of the golf swing are so valued that some people will spend $24,000 on a machine and self-talk is so undervalued 
that we won't spend one dollar ninety nine on a journal. And look, I'm 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 glamorizing that and and playing around a bit, but there is some truth to that statement, don't you think? Absolutely, and that's it. And maybe that's you've got to look at it from an honest perspective. Do they really want to see their thoughts on paper? As humans, we have difficult thoughts, feelings, and do they? Would they want to see them more if they believed it would change their level of performance? Yeah, I, I, I think so. So, I think it's still so. Okay, this goes all the way back to what we said at the start, right? The lack of maybe understanding of how important sports psychology, you know, potentially is. Um, awesome. I, I hope the listeners are, are, are getting this and thinking about being better uh, friends and caddies to themselves and, and wondering about their self-talk and, and, and adding some value. But I want to change gear a little bit. I know you work in other sports. Um, a lot of my coaching of golf and my beliefs about how we should practice and how we should think come from um, researchers in other fields come from myself playing rugby come from reading book I actually read recently the coddling of the American mind which went deep into a lot of CBT stuff have you ever read that I haven't no. it's brilliant they, they actually so just to quickly I'll jump around a lot sorry uh, they talked about self-talk and their conclusion was the best way to have better self-talk is when you figure out you're saying something that you don't like um, and it's not productive in that moment, change the voice. They talked a lot about changing it to like Donald Duck. If Donald Duck told you you were an idiot and you sucked at golf, you'd just yeah. laugh it off. You wouldn't believe him. But the thing about self-talk is you believe it because you're hearing it in your own voice. Um, and I'd that. heard that before, but I'd forgotten about that tool and I started to use it and it, it was yeah. awesome. So that's another amazing uh, book that, that you can read. Um, that links in to be fair, sorry, to, that links okay. in really nicely with one of the techniques that sometimes I'll use to help people diffuse from that thought in terms of think about someone that you don't necessarily like or you wouldn't give them the time of the day if they were to come over and talk to you. Then we attach that essentially belief that they're having, which might be, you know, I'm worthless, I can't do this, I can't do that. Then almost kind of view that situation as it's them talking as that person that you don't like or you don't value then that's how we start to change the diffusion from it. Does it make me unpatriotic that when you said that, Boris Johnson jumped into my mind? That's the only person I could think of. Can I even you say that on this podcast? the first person to say that who's someone you don't like. <laughs> and you'll hear me say now, you'll hear me say in sessions and stuff like that, right? Was that Boris speaking or was that you? And oh my God, that's amazing. That's brilliant. Love it. Yeah, you'll hear me. You'll, you'll hear me saying, okay, was that Donald Duck? Was that SpongeBob SquarePants? Like, so we... We're coming up with very, very similar theories. This, this yeah. is cool. Um, but to go back to my, my point, like that book was written about people fearing um, about the coddling of the future generations of the world and the safe space theory and things like that. And I, and I found it a fascinating book. And then, you know, if you look at John Wooden, who's the winningest basketball coach of all time, Arsene Wenger was mm. a person that, that, that I modeled a lot and looked at other sports um, to, to implement stuff. I, I can tell you if we went through my coaching manual, I'd be like, yeah, that was Wenger. That was Wenger. I went to watch Arsenal play and they were interleaving practice. And so, you know, I, I've taken so much from outside of golf and I've worked a little bit in other sports. I've done a bit in soccer. I've done a bit in softball, but nowhere near to the extent that, that, that you have. So let's change gear. Let's talk a little bit about other sports and, um, you know, majority of people listening to this will probably be golfers. They, they may not. Uh, the, the, the audience might shift over time. Uh, so just, just talk about some cool experiences of, of working in some of the crazy sports that, that, that you're part of. Yeah, I think one of the time when I first took it up was, was motorsport. Um, and obviously looking at it from, from that perspective. At the time when I took on the contract, I was driving a one-litre Corsa. Uh, <laughs> I got to 70 mile an hour and my car started shaking. And then I'm having to sit in room, rooms with people who are 16, 17, 18 years old, and they're driving Ford STs, they're driving 120 miles an hour, and, and really talking about the psychological characteristics that 
cause them to almost want to get in the car and drive as fast as you can around these bends that could potentially be life-threatening. Um, I think when you, and that's what it was, you know, that was one thing that really struck me was just the, not fear, fearlessness, just the acceptance of the danger. You know, these people, people think that you've got to be mad to get behind this car and they weren't. They were accepting that there is a danger and a threat that comes behind getting the wheel every time. It was more, and the consistent messages that I get, I've worked across that program now for three years and I've seen probably up to a hundred athletes now, a hundred drivers and they're, they're all the same, you know, they accept it, but they just love the thrill. They say when I'm behind the wheel, that's, so much better than when I'm out with the wheel. I want to get back. Can we can we link that back to golf? I think there's a huge learning for mm. golfers in there. Uh, but I'm going to tee it up, tee it up for you. See if we're on this. Mm. No pun, no pun intended. We tee it up. By the way, I'm going to tee it up for you, and I, I want to see if we're on the same wavelength. So, what can a golfer take from um, that embracement of of danger and wanting to get get behind the wheel? I think you've stumped me there with that one from an honest perspective. Yeah, I think I would probably say it's probably an acceptance that when they're on the course in the moment, very much just living it. Yeah, because I think I think it's to me, it's strange, right? This person's going to drive around a track mm. 120 miles an hour. Their car might spin off. They could break their arm, leg. And they're like, I know this could happen. I know this could happen. Yeah. Let's embrace it. Whereas you stand on a tee, the worst thing that you can happen is the ball can go out of bounds. No one's going to get hurt. No one's going to die. And we can't accept, like, people can't accept that they might miss this three-footer. Like, accept you might miss it. I, I can't. But you're speaking to these elite um, drivers and they're like, yeah, I know. I know I could. I know I could. The worst case scenario. You know, so I feel like golfers yeah. could, again, get think outside the box, listen to other athletes, listen to how they train, listen to their mindset, try and transition that into, into this sport. Golf is not different. I hear that a lot. Golf is so different because of this, this, and this. And yes, there are differences, but ultimately human performance, you have to be accepting of the consequences in, in any sport or, or any level. Um, that's awesome, man. I think it's so exciting you work in that. Throw, throw us another one your your uh, our way. Like what another great sport that you've done some work in that's super interesting. Another danger one as well, downhill ski jumper. I think that was um that was an incredible one. That was because I've only been skiing once. And it helps <laughs> though, you know, having these experiences. But for me, it's fascinating because as you just said there on podcasts, you'll learn so much. That's what I'm like as well in these in these one-to-ones, you know. I'm uh, the individual, sorry, is is there sort of sort of um, giving me all the numbers of the moves like 501, 401, 582, 50s, and I'm just like, um, sorry, you're gonna have to rein it in here. What does that mean? Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, go on. Sorry, carry on, mate. As, as you said, that it's it's very much similar though to that. You know, we're very accepting and embracing. But then I think we spoke a little bit about it around how they sort of get into the sport. And, you know, it's a different journey to different sports because from an early age, one of the things that they're taught getting into this sport is how to fall over, how to fall out, how to fail um, safely, yeah. because this is a dangerous sport. And if you are going to move forward and it was very interesting having that conversation around that was accepting at a younger age, it was almost embraced, you know, I can't wait to fall over and get back up again and start again. And then as they get a little bit older, a little bit more aware of the vulnerabilities the body tends to slow down if you get injured as well. That's when it starts to influence the thought processes, and sometimes it can create a little, a little problems and, and a few issues. Did we see that with Simone Biles? Is that kind of mm. that process? Because she got the she got the twisters, as they call it, yeah. which might be transitioned to the yips. And I know she's not a ski jumper. I know yeah. she's a gymnast, but she's doing a very similar thing: flying through the yeah. air, putting her body in different positions as she hurtles through time and space so she's i can't remember how old she is now but obviously she was super young when she started yeah. oh oh were we watching that happen at, at the olympics am i am i right am i wrong 
that's it. As you said there, maybe accepting, but also, as you said, athletes respond differently. I think she accepted the vulnerabilities um, and made a decision accordingly to, to what was in her best interests, which I think was shows a lot of sort of awareness and uh, yeah. a lot of maturity. I think if you're asking a younger athlete to do that, maybe they're in a, a win-at-all-costs sort of mentality, you know, maybe not aware of, of the implications of that. So it's... And, and to your previous point, the younger mm. athlete is going to be less likely to go through that because of, you know, you talked about the ski jumper. As they get older, they get more vulnerable. So maybe Simone Biles of four years ago or eight years ago is less prone to that mindset because of her age. Is that, is that am I right there? Yeah, I think, as you said there, and I think it's also maybe to highlight that those vulnerabilities are probably there from an early age, but it's almost kind of the awareness and the experience that they have of that um, is not there at an, at an early age, you know, and, and that perception of, of, oh, this this is this is what's going to happen. You know, if I, if I make a mistake here and fall, when you're 13, 14, which a lot of Olympic gymnasts, you know, they break through at an early age, and, and so do ski jumpers to that extent as well, but it's it's almost kind of like yeah okay they might be out for six weeks whereas opposed to 25 26 it could be up to a year yeah um should we be teaching failure in golf i feel like when someone's very young they're almost taught to try and be perfect you got to grip it like this you got to stand like this you got to do this and then the ball's going to go straight (laughs) i don't think that's the truth (laughs) It's very variable. It's very dynamic. The environment's ever-changing. Golf is a problem-solving game. Every shot is a different problem. So if we help them fail at an earlier age, do you feel like a lot of those behaviors could be could be cleaned up? And just as a, a psychologist, what would that look like? How do we help them fail? How do we encourage failure at, at an early age? I, I think to answer that question, I think it would definitely benefit, you know, from an early age because you do see golfers that step out onto the tee and they're more worried about failing or where the golf ball is going to go than actually executing the the beauty and the experience of a golf shot. You know, they're more worried, their mind's fixated on failing before they've even hit the golf shot. And when we go back to the, the fact that the brain's a prediction machine, they are living on that fact they are seeing that fact as that is what's going to happen. And, and it, it just isn't the case. And, and as you said there, and what failing looks like, and I think that's where we link it in with some of the stuff that, that you've, you've sort of um, presented me with, you know, in the books and stuff like that around sort of variability and the intensity and how you drop the levels and up the levels. And I think that's what I'll do. So I, I'll openly admit, you know, on, on client sessions where I've done the dice game with them and created the levels, you know, and really added some of that cognitive sort of level to it and cognitive sort of vulnerability from that perspective and, and challenge them. And even to the extent where with a, with a client, what I want to try and do is if it is in a competitive situation that they struggle, can we replicate that session? I've asked them, have they got a golf partner that they wouldn't mind getting involved with, with me observing and going one-on-one with them, you know, so that individual's doing it for their best interests and they're playing against someone that they know can support them in that, but still challenge them. Got you. Almost setting them up to, or even if it's better, you know, you introduce them to better golfers and say, you've got to play a, a match play situation, but there's no handicap, there's no shots. Challenge yourself, see yeah. how they react. But then the feedback, I think as well, when, when you when you fail, if you're a coach, if you're a psych, the feedback element is really important. Oh, you know, perfect. Yeah. Let's let's go into that a bit. What yeah. what does optimal feedback look like? Because I think in golf there's a tendency tendency for too much feedback. Yeah. Um, what are the different kinds of feedback? Just just quickly rip through that because I know golf coaches are going to listen to this, and I yeah. think that could be advisable. That's an area that I see that could be developed um, at times. Uh, so from a from an expert's perspective, a sports psychologist's perspective, what is optimal feedback? Mm. My, my, my opinion from, from optimal feedback is almost kind of presenting in the situation with what did you learn? What, what, what are you yeah. taking from this? What are you taking from this experience? Because if you ask an athlete or a golfer to reflect, just giving them open, open-ended conversation, they're probably going to present you with a lot of information. And as a coach, it's a case of saying, well, what is useful there for you? But actually you can present that situation where you're saying to them, what did you learn and how are you going to use it? 
but two simple questions really and just break through and cut through the noise as I call it cut through the noise of, of, of what is a reflection as well but as you said giving reflections but almost presenting them and you know what sometimes it might even be in replicating the behaviors get involved with the chest with a sorry with the session with them and fail you know challenge yeah. yourself as a coach showing them replicating what what you're trying to emulate in them in yourself yeah oh i mean um, if you, that would if i had to play golf with some of my students i would definitely be um embracing a lot of failure yeah. Uh, so, yeah. You know, I've actually done this. I delivered a workshop. I can't remember what it was, but I made a, a specific area to mess up the first five minutes of the, the workshop and walk out as, as if to say, like, I can't handle this, just to see how they would react and then walk back in and just do everyone's surprise. And it worked really well. I don't imagine it would imagine doing this and it backfiring, but they were just like, oh my God, like, and it was just this idea of, you know, it's okay to fail just because I'm a so, so-called expert. Yeah. I mean, I'm sort of, sort of, I can't fail at anything. And I do, I, I make mistakes, but you and just I, normalize it then. Yeah. We live in this world now where uh, failure or mistakes with the social media and everyone putting across that this, <laughs> my life is perfect and look at this and I can't wait. This is awesome. And, you know, we know that that's not, not the case. Um, I, I actually, so something I use and, and then we'll move on uh, to, I, I have a couple of, well, one last question for you maybe, yeah. but visualization. So we just talked there about failure, embracing failure and how the modern world, like everything on television is always like, you want this and then this is perfect and look how this person looks. And then social media is it's this and it's this and it's this. And, there's not really much around, Hey, things go wrong and successful people deal with adversity. It's always this like picture of perfection that, that I think a lot of kids, especially teenage girls feel like they have to live up to. And it's, it's dangerous. So I'm trying to use golf as a vehicle to be like, Hey, you're 14 years old. You're going to a tournament that's 36 holes. Something's going to go wrong. Like let, let's not use, let's not visualize 18 birdies. Let's not visualize hitting 18 greens and making every putt. Let's visualize how you're going to walk, how you're going to talk, how you're going to breathe when things go wrong, because things are going wrong. Um, are there any strategies that, that you have that, that can build on that or that are similar to that? And as you said there, it's from my perspective, it's understanding what the almost the instinctive reaction of the mind is, you know, and when things are going wrong, that's when the mind will sort of tell us to rush things. Yeah. You know? So one of the things that we do temp when we're under a little bit of pressure is we rush the duration between the skill is increased. So that's one of the areas that we work on is, is keeping things to a level of control, understanding what that tempo looks like and sticking to that tempo, you know, going through pre-shot routines uh, which I know you've spoken quite a lot about. Obviously, the framework really works well, and I've personally used that with clients, you know, the Osvia. Yeah. Um, and because one one of the things that really resonated with me was the acceptance element, you know, committing to a shot and then ex accepting the, the consequences, no matter what they are. But really understanding the um, the tempo that you want to be able to, to do, but also as well, as you said, it's this, it's this idea of recognising when the mind wants to present you with facts rather than um, actually where you want to go and understanding what type of golfer you want to be. So, you know, when things are going bad, this is when your authentic self should be coming out. And what I mean by that is the, the, the golfer that you want to be, the golfer that you value, you know, we all have a brand and style of golf that we want to play. What is that? Let's go to that. When awesome. things aren't going so well, because ultimately when things are going well, you know, Ian, as well, this isn't part of their conscious awareness. This is just happening instinctively. Yeah. Through that. It's when things aren't going to plan. So I would say to any golfer out there, understand what type of golfer they want to be. What, what does that authentic self look like? And how can you move towards that? Awesome. Great answer. Um, honestly, I think there's so, my goal is always to add value for the listener. I want the, the listener to be like, oh, I'm going to try that, or that could help me, or oh, I'm going to use that technique with, with my kids or with my friends. And, and I think, look, your, your, your energy, 
your passion. We can tell you do what you love. We can tell you've worked very hard to gain all this knowledge. So I hope that people listen to this, uh, take on your, your words of wisdom and, and really apply them. Um, the last question for, for the listeners, you may have picked up that Lyle has a bit of an accent. Uh, so for the US <laughs> listeners, he's from the Birmingham-ish Midlands area, which is not too far away from me but he just speaks very, very different to, to me as they do down in, in that part of the country. Um, so there's a, a soccer or football team that have recently appointed one of my favorite players, Steven Gerrard. Uh, and since they've done that, they're on the absolute rise. Uh, now it turns out that Lyle supports the opposing team. Uh, so I just wanted to round off with the question of, why are the Villa doing so well under Steven Gerrard? And is he, uh, you know, giving them something they need mentally, psychologically that, that has maybe been, been missing in the, in the past? And it, it may be a painful subject for you being a blue. It may be not. But, you know, I, I just wanted to, to have that conversation with you. One, for the, for the little bit of a, a wind-up. For the American guys, it's a bit like, Alabama Auburn here and he's an Auburn fan but he's answering a question on Alabama so let's go let's fire that one out oh, I love it yeah I don't think Birmingham City have opposed Villa for a number of years now <laughs> <so>. <laughs> well I'm a Forest fan so just about as yeah, bad yeah there you go starting to come back but no absolutely and you know what I'm a, I'm a realist you know I, I, I respect and I love the psychology behind um, high performing teams and, and Aston Villa are one of those you know and obviously respecting I think it's interesting because obviously he comes in there with a lot of respect as yeah. what he achieved as a player, um, as a person as well. I know I've listened to him speak and he, he speaks very well and he, he uses what some of the words that we probably used in this call, which is compassion, empathy, understanding and awareness. You know, he understands what the needs are of a professional footballer. And I think that's one thing that's really showed. And I think you listen to, I think, Jacob Rundy, who's one of the midfielder players, who's one of the younger ones, who's been given an opportunity more under him. And he comes out yeah. and he's like, I want to emulate what he's done as a player. Yeah. Yeah. One word, role model, you know, yeah. coming out as a role model as a player, but then utilising that in a manager's perspective. And I think it's a really nice sort of way that he speaks, but he, he really understands the, what it's like to be a professional footballer. It, um, it, I, with that in mind, why do you think it never worked out for Lampard at Chelsea? I felt like he was going to do that there. Yeah. You, and this is it. I think know. question of time. I reckon. Do you reckon that maybe he could have got to that stage? Because um, they didn't. They weren't too bad, were they? They weren't losing every single game. They were. That's very true. But they're just just, just a, modern day football, right? Just how it that's goes. That's it. That's it. it but but that's it. And especially when you sort of look at it as ex players as well. Sometimes it can damage their reputation. But I also think he's got high demands. I know. I speak. I hear it sort of a lot of the media around. This is what I expect of my players, but I think he's got an understanding there of I expect this, but I also am open to listen to what they want. Interesting. Has to I like be a that a lot. Relationship. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. That's great. Um, dude, it's been an absolute pleasure. I felt pretty tired when I got on this podcast. I'd just done one before and you've, you've fired me up. So I hope the listeners enjoy it. Why don't you just give a little shout out to your business, to any free downloads that the, the guys have your social media, where can they connect with you? Um, if any parent contacts me and, and says they would like to look at some of your work, I'm sure you don't mind me maybe distributing the, mm -hmm. some of the stuff you've done. So just, just now's your, your stage, just give, give your, give your handles and, and your contact details a shout out. No, brilliant. No, I appreciate that. Yeah. So the company is spark performance. So we're all over sort of Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, um, you can find us just at spark underscore perform. Uh, the website is spark, um, spark.perform.co.uk. And obviously we've got the performance journal again, which is pretty much athlete development um, across all sports. We're looking at sort of, sort of uh, really trying to centralize it towards golf, football, and all of the specific sports I'm currently working in. And also as well, developing an app as well. So that's all in the pipeline potentially. Um, but yeah, Spark Perform. Uh, and the story behind that was I was actually an electrician before a psychologist. So, Oh, uh, I thought it was because that uh, class created that spark. Nah, that's it. No, nah, yeah, no. Uh, my stepdad's got his own electrical firm and they're called Sparkies. Um, 
There we go. That as well. So yeah, that was where Spark was formed. There we go. So so just be... to prove to people that I know how to do a day's work. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, look, when the uh, when the travel uh, madness testing whatever it is uh, eases up, uh, we'd love you to have you out in Boston at the at the Core Academy. You'd spend some time with me and you just brainstorming, talking, chewing the fat, but come see the kids, see what we do, spend some time at our facility. That's a, that's an open-ended invite, man. I, I love Absolutely. what you do. Love your energy and passion and, and keep up the great work. Uh, thank you for inviting me on the platform. I really enjoyed that. No worries, dude. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the Core Performance Podcast. Your one-stop shop for getting to the core of all things golf and human performance. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Ian and Andrew, check us out on Instagram at Core Academy. We'll see you next time.